Okay, so I'm going to see if you can handle this one for me. Um, okay. How do you describe what this movie is about? Just pretend somebody has never heard of it before. What's what's a plot synopsis? Um, a, a plot synopsis. Okay. Um, so... Um... This is Tim League. He's the founder of the much-beloved Alamo Drafthouse Cinema Chain and the founder of the film distribution company Drafthouse Films. Since 2010, Drafthouse Films has produced and distributed dozens of pictures. They have an eclectic taste. And if you look at their library of films, you'll find documentaries, indie horror, and foreign films that might not have otherwise been seen in the United States. But what I'm asking Tim about is a picture that was made years before Drafthouse Films even existed. There's a, a researcher who's in Africa and he's studying lions, hasn't seen his family for uh, quite a while, but he goes out and doesn't know, he knows they're arriving, but maybe gets mixed signals and they arrive when he doesn't really realize that they're coming. So what they don't know is in, in the course of his research, he's started to live with 50 lions in the house and so they roll up to the house and have madcap adventures running away from lions until he arrives and then they hug it out and you know are happy i don't know it's really not much of a story but it's 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 the most white knuckle g-rated disney family adventure that's absolutely terrifying the picture he's talking about is called roar a movie that first debuted in Australia in 1981, but didn't premiere in the United States until Drafthouse Films got involved with it in 2015. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're taking a look at one of the craziest productions I have ever heard of, a production that includes lions, tigers, elephants, broken bones, gangrene, a flood, years of production, and hundreds upon hundreds of stitches. Welcome to the industry, presented by Movie Maker. The story of Roar begins when actress Tippi Hedren and her second husband, producer Noel Marshall, head off to Mozambique. Tippi is there to film a picture called Satan's Harvest which sounds like a horror movie, but isn't. It's a cat and mouse game where the strong will survive and the weak don't stand a chance. Filmed entirely on location in exotic Africa, George Montgomery and Tippi Hedren star in the supercharged action adventure, Satan's Harvest. And while on location in Africa, Tippi and Noel see a house that a pride of lions have taken over. It's quite a sight, and they both fall in love with the lions they see. And from there, the idea of a movie grew that Noel Marshall would direct. The idea itself, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it was a movie featuring their own family and lions, lots of lions. When dad asked, you know, the family, they said, well, hey, we, we, just, we just got back from Africa and we want to make this movie. And then I says, do you guys, would you guys want to be in it? And, you know, Tippy and Jerry and I, oh, my hand went up the fastest. And I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah. And uh, my, my older brother said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And uh, so he was the only one that wasn't in the movie. This is John Marshall, Noel's son. John and his brother Jerry are both in the movie Roar. As you heard him explain, his other brother Joel opted to work just behind the scenes. Tippy's daughter, Melanie Griffith, 
also agreed to be in the movie. In order for this movie to work, they need lions. More than just a few. And the process of bringing lions who know how to act didn't really work. We had all done, you know, enough acting. And so we knew we'd have trained Hollywood lions. I mean, who would, who would like do a movie that, you know, if he said, we're going to use wild lions, we would have all went, well, that's dumb. They're wild. And so uh, we went out and uh, we, we, so we all agreed, yeah, that's a good idea. Or we agreed to do it. And then we started interviewing lions and none of the lion trainers would get along with each other, nor would they put their male lion with another male lion. They said, you cannot get two male lions together. That just doesn't happen. Dad's like, well, but we need like 10. And they go, oh, if you want 10, you got to get your own, man. You might as well just, you know, then you can start to get to know them a little bit. You know, figure things out, you know, but yeah, you, you're going to need to get your own. And then that's all we needed was all right. And so began a new process, this one of gathering as many big cats as they could in preparation for making Roar. I mean, we took animals because there were a lot back then. Everybody, you know, that was a common thing for Hollywood celebrities. They'd buy a, a lion cub or a tiger cub. And then three months later, you know, after they'd ruined all their furniture and start to eat their kids, you know, they go, does anybody want to take a lion? And so, you know, we, we get a lot that way. And then we also took a lot of full-grown ones. We would take literally anything. And John, somehow, while still being a teenager, mind you, winds up running the ranch that all of these animals are on. I built everything, and there was no money, so they couldn't hire anybody. But I, could, I taught myself how to drive a backhoe. I taught myself how to drive a bulldozer. Steve gave me uh, two hours of training on how to take the elephant in and out, which didn't work very well because he attacked me twice. And after acquiring a myriad of big cats and other animals, pre-production on Roar drags on for years. I was 13 when I played with my first lion for this movie. And then when we started filming, I think I was 20 or 21. So it took us a couple of years and then it took years to get the animals and then two year building sets and then we'd run out of money all the time. By 1975, Melanie Griffith has already started working consistently in Hollywood. That year, she appeared in three pictures, Night Moves, Smile, and The Drowning Pool. It's not until 1976 that they're finally ready to shoot Roar. Roar was also the first American film for Dutch cinematographer Jan de Bont. You may know him as the director of 90s blockbusters like Speed and Twister, but it was Roar that first brought him to the United States. Uh, Jan de Bont got bitten two and a half weeks into the movie. Uh, he got 220 stitches in his head. And so then somebody's taken him off to the hospital. And I went into the office and somebody was following me in and said, so John... You know, there was no formal things. This is early on. So it was like I was I was the AD, uh, but also I was the UPM and then also producing kind of. And so somebody says, what, what are you doing? I go, I'm calling to see if I can find another DP because that guy ain't coming back. He had 220 stitches. I mean, he, he's really bad. I had to throw the scalp on his head and put a towel on it and say, keep the pressure on it. Take him to the hospital. And. Jan came back two and a half weeks later and finished the whole movie. I couldn't believe it. But Jan came back, even after being scalped by a lion and requiring something like 220 stitches in his head. Jan came back and finished Roar, which took years to finish. So why would anyone do this? 
Jan came back because he had so much. First off, we got him into the United States. We sponsored him for his green card. We were getting him into the union. So there were a lot of reasons for him to want to keep doing it. And dad uh, uh, gave Jan whatever he needed. And we bought five carbon arcs. And it was so hard to find replacement parts because they stopped using carbon arcs in like the early 70s, I think. But uh, uh, dad bought Jan everything he needed, cameras we just got from Panavision. But uh, Jan had all the tools available to him. That's why it looks so good now. A place in the union and a green card can be a strong motivator. So I understand that. Well, sort of. But what about the family themselves? Why was John showing up every day when you have a story like this to tell? I got bitten and I got 56 stitches in the head and it took six guys 25 minutes to get the lion off of me. And I kept having to work with that lion for five years of filming. And for five years, he was trying to finish the job. Not only did the injuries keep happening, but the shoot dragged on for an impressively long five years. Once we started filming, um, you, you were established. And as, as, and as we got further, the, the original shooting schedule was, was nine months. So uh, we were all fine to put up with it for nine months. And we did love the animals. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course, nobody thought it was going to take five years. So Melanie would go off and she'd cut her hair and go do a piece of another movie. And she'd come back. We'd have to put this terrible wig on her. And uh, (laughs) it was so that's why she also doesn't like it. She didn't look too good. She shouldn't have kept cutting her hair. But uh, we all knew we had to finish it. Tippi Hedren broke her leg and wound up with gangrene after falling off an elephant. Melanie Griffith would get mauled and need facial reconstructive surgery. Yet they kept going despite all of the injuries. Can you describe what a typical day filming was like? It was never a typical day. One of the harder things in the morning was to get dad out and, and figuring out the shot because... He was also, he was directing, but he was also producing. So he was always on the phone trying to get more money. And so I'd call him up from the front and I'd say, Dad, we've been ready for about a half an hour. And he'd go, okay, I'll be there in five minutes. I said, Dad, I can hear you that you're in the fucking bathtub. Don't lie to me. (laughs) You need to get out here. And then he'd change things around. But, you know, there were days that we, we wouldn't get a shot for two or three days sometimes. And we would never stop filming a shot, you know, until we'd done it for two or three or four days sometimes, you know, because dad always thought that it was possible to get it better or with more lions, you know. But uh, so you really never knew what was, you didn't even know for sure what you were going to be filming. And the definition for a good day on this set was not the same as any other movie. Usually, you know, if you're in a movie scene with somebody, you, you talk about it and say, wow, I really like that performance I gave on take four. And you compare your things and see, you know, perfect your craft. Well, at the end of the day on Roar, the thing was, wow, I'm not in the hospital. It was a good day. And as you might have guessed by now, Keeping crew members on the set of Roar was not an easy task. I I had one day where 18 quit on one day. They all just went, as Chris, the elephant trainer, is funny. He goes, yeah, and 18 Hollywood people just went that away. And it's like they somebody said rap or lunch or something. But these guys, they all just went, fuck you. (laughs) They got out of there. And and yes, you always had a lot of crew turnover. In an article about his entire career, 
retired sound mixer Tim Cooney wrote about his experiences making Roar. Tim had been initially hired as an animal trainer. These filmmakers really had nerve to put up with this. There were only three real animal trainers on this film, myself and two other guys. The rest were people hired off the street to throw meat and be human shields. As the filming on the picture took longer and longer, Tim was able to transition into being a boom mic operator, and when the picture wrapped, he had a new career in sound. Here is how he described his first day on the set of Roar. Well, I was excited to be on my first film set. So I walked up and Noel said, stand right there. All the animal handlers and most of the crew got in two lines facing each other about five feet apart. For the life of me, I could not figure out what we were doing. So I, I thought it must be some kind of film thing. The two lines of people went from the animal compound to this, this set house that they had built on the edge of the lake. Courtney Gooden was next to me in line, was the sound mixer on the show. He ended up being a good friend. I turned and asked him what was going on. But before he could answer, there was a sound, kind of like a combination of panic and thunder. Then I saw 40 of these untrained, basically wild lions, tigers, cougars, and leopards running down the human chute we had created. This crazy man, Noel, was chasing them with a large piece of plywood, yelling and screaming, while shaking a 4 by 8 piece of plywood as he ran after them. My first thought was to run without looking like a gazelle. Then I hear Noel yelling that if we try to run, they will get you. But Tim was in for the long haul of roar. Most crew members were not. One such person was Robert Primes a cameraman for Roar who would go on to have a solid career in the industry as a director of photography. I worked for, uh, I'm going to guess, a couple of weeks or so, um, enough to have some real adventures, and then decided it was just it was just too crazy. I mean, I, I, I mean, it was like a unique experience. I mean, I've, I've, I've done 50 years of, of filming, and I've never uh, had anything remotely like that. It was... Uh, it was it was crazy. the The danger factor was just uh, nobody had a danger factor like that. And like I suspect most of the crew members who worked on Roar, he didn't exactly know what he was getting himself into. Somebody called somebody anyway. I wound up going there. It was way out in Acton, and um, from my experience, uh, I just presumed it was a uh, uh, they had tons of Panavision gear and loads of arcs and lots of uh, first-rate expensive equipment, so I just presumed it was a professional production and that uh, people who were handling the animals were trained and, you know, I, I made the, the kind of assumptions you do uh, if you look at a movie set and you say, well, they got, they got lots of money, they must be hiring professionals. But it doesn't take very long for Robert to realize that this is no ordinary Hollywood shoot. The first day I was shooting, and I could operate a gearhead, which was a a, uh, talent or a skill, I should say, not a talent, a skill, that uh, not everybody had. They set it up and they warned me that one particular lion has a crippled back foot, which makes her very mean and defensive. And so, of course, that's the lion he ends up having to film. And I'm on this uh, big Panavision camera, 1,000-foot magazines, uh, big long zoom lens, uh, big heavy monster. Like I couldn't, I couldn't have carried, you know, I couldn't have lifted it on my shoulders. And I was young then. Um, and uh, 
We are in a hastily made-up cage out in the middle of, of this area, uh, a wooded treat area, that's got a um, strong cyclone fence around around us, kind of uh, caging us in, uh, with a, a good strong door with a latch. And the idea is that um, the door would be open and I would get my shot. I'd be safely in the cage, which if the lion's charge could be closed by our our handler, our safety guy. Robert's in his cage, ready to roll film on the lion. You know, the mean and defensive lion. So the lion gets up and we're rolling on a 35 millimeter film, um, and uh, which is expensive. And we're rolling on it and the lion is moving around and it hasn't quite decided um, what it's going to do. And then Noel, he says, no, no, get closer, get closer. Well, if I get closer, my lens, one of apparatus that's very heavy, will be blocked the ability to close the door. You know, so I'm thinking, oh my God, what is a, a foot or two closer? What is it going to do? But he's he's shouting and he's uh, he's crazy and he's excited about it like that. So, so um, with help, you know, move, move the camera closer. But now I know the door won't close. Okay. But okay, so uh, and then we're rolling and the lion is... Uh, uh, coming in lions looking at me and then Jan de Bont, uh, who was the uh, director of photography the, the the number one camera person uh, he's out there without the cage I can read what the lion's saying the lion's thinking well here's a new guy to test me or there's Jan, and Jan is really out there exposed and isn't too protected which one is he going to go for there's no question he's going to go for one of us I'm going, and the lion just, just darts. I mean, you know, it just uh, pounces and goes for Jan. Uh, Jan, he dives out of the way, like almost a little somersault out of the way, leaving the camera running, because there's no time to switch it off. The thousand feet of film just isn't that important when your life's at stake. And the lion grabs the magazine with his teeth, grabs it into this magazine, which is steel, okay? The teeth pierce the steel. This is not lightweight steel. This is heavy steel. You know, I don't know, eighth of an inch steel, something like that. And the lion lifts the camera. So this is a 35 millimeter camera, thousand foot magazines, thousand feet of film, the camera body, a heavy zoom lens, a big gear head, and a set of heavy wooden sticks. This camera weighs about a hundred pounds, mind you. The lion has got it in its teeth jerks it up, the muscles in the lion are so strong that it's no weight for it. Um, the teeth c collapse through the magazine, jamming the film. Panavision still has it as a trophy. And and does one of these things where you shake it to, uh, to set the teeth in, which means if that were any kind of a living thing, it would be gone. You know, uh, tosses down and turns uh, and, and looks over toward me. <laughs> so you can imagine, I've just seen this thing go, and I am scrambling uh, so the fucking door can close so that he doesn't come and eat us, right? It's the first night. It's the first night on there. Okay. So I'm down low where I'm trying to wrap my arms around the tripod so I can grab it back and move it back. And the lion comes, and the trainer says, stand up, stand up. 
and I you stand up now because the trainer who I, I was not a real trainer it was just a guy that showed up and wanted to work and they said here you do this and here's how um, which I found out later but he knew that a lion judges you on your height if you're taller than the lion you might be a, 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 a dangerous foe if you're shorter than the lion he's pretty sure he can take you and I get the camera turned sideways and we get the door closed. Robert definitely felt safer once he was able to get the gate closed. He survived the day, but soon realized that the cage wasn't exactly going to protect him. What I didn't know and I saw later is the lion with his claw can grab any of that cyclone fence and just rip it up. I mean, just, just tear it off and just whip it open and, and, and go around there. So this cage we were in was not lion-proof. It was either just to discourage the lion or to make us feel better. One thing I was really able to understand in speaking with Robert is how this picture took five years to film. It's not simply the injuries. The process of shooting untrained lions is a very, very slow process. So we would spend hours and hours and hours trying to put eight cameras in a position where we'd get some shots uh, without getting the cameras in the shots and uh, have it lit and all that. And then the lions and Noel Marshall would come out and um, immediately they would go for one of the cameras. They would go by the camera, which means that camera, the lion's too close to do anything with, and the other cameras couldn't get a shot without the camera being in the shot. So it's no good. So, so almost, we would spend like three or four hours setting up, and then almost instantly the lions would outsmart us. This was like typical. This would happen uh, uh, virtually all, almost every day, so it seemed. Some days, 50,000 feet of film were shot, trying to capture the lions doing something. So yes, there were lots of injuries making roar. But the fact that the lions were really not taking any direction is what helped grind that shoot down to a slow crawl. And I was hand-holding in this room, and they gave me a helmet, you know, a helmet for protection. And I've got the camera in my lap. I'm holding it in my lap, and I'm seated, and someone opens the door, and as soon as the door opens, the lion immediately wants to get out, and they say, don't let that lion get out the door. And I'm the closest person. So instinctively on that, I stand up, and my hands are full of camera, and I made a gesture to try to block the lion with my head, with a, with a helmet. Now, I only did that for a second, because uh, it occurred to me that uh, the lion's jaws are easily big enough to hold my head. You know, I mean, uh, the lion wanted to decapitate me. It, 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 it can. It's got the strength and the size to do it. And I thought, what the fuck am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stop the lion with my head? You know, you think about that, you know. Um, and that was, I just remember, you know, what a stupid thing to do. And for Robert, this was it. He had had enough. Although it wasn't entirely the lions that he had had enough of. I was on the gearhead, and I was scared. And I got it. But 
I flinched a little bit. Now, as this thing happened, my move, and, and, and with a gearhead, your right hand goes clockwise to tilt down, counterclockwise to uh, tilt up. Your left hand goes clockwise to pan left, counterclockwise to pan right. And so there's no thinking about it or anything else. You've just got to be practiced enough that it happens intuitively. And during this, that nobody expected, my move, I got it, but it was had a little jiggle in it or jerk in it. And Noel critiqued me and he says, oh, Bob, you didn't operate that right. You know, you had a little thing. And I knew he was trying to shame me a little bit to say, well, you got to be better than that, Bob. I know you can do better. You know, and I just thought, this is crazy. I thought this might, I mean, he, what he did is he offended me. He's critiquing my operation at a time where a lion is truly trying to attack. The fact that Noel was crit- criticizing my operating at that moment, uh, and yes, I did flinch. You're damn right I did. Uh, it was a real, real attack. <laughs> the combination of the danger. The danger itself stupidly didn't have me back out of it because cinematographers tend to be a little, uh, damn the torpedoes, uh, bring it on uh, anyway. But his manipulating and and insulting my operating, uh, that that is the straw that broke the camel's back. If the injuries and the slow process of filming lions wasn't enough, there was also the flood. First off, we live in a riverbed. Uh, and it's the only year-round running river, although it's a creek in the summertime usually. We diverted the creek into the lake. That's how we got the, you know, the lake that we could drive boats on and things. But what happened was we got, I think it was 19 inches of rain in a, uh, in a 24-hour period of time. And unbeknownst to us, about five miles upriver, there was this two-lane little road that used to go down through a little creek bed and then up. Well, somebody in the government decided that they should make it so that it's straight across. And they put two 12-inch culverts and then uh, raised the road up, you know, like 12 feet or something. And well, what that did, because if you know anything about a lot of rainfall, that it, it brings all of the loose uh, branches and dead trees and everything. Well, that, that culvert got clogged probably in about an hour and a half. And then what it did is it started backing up and it built a dam, but it wasn't, the, the road was not meant to be a dam. It was just, you know, they just pushed dirt there and then paved over it. And so uh, uh, the thing went back probably about, 200 feet and maybe 150 feet wide so it was a lot of water and we were already dealing with a lot of rainfall but when that big when that dam broke that thing it was like a uh, an eight foot wall of water that came down that thing and just wiped out here's what tim cooney wrote about the flood there was a flood and a major fire that swept through the compound during the course of the film Several people, including Courtney, were stuck on what became a small island and had to be winched across a raging river in a harness in the dark as things like houses and cars and propane tanks and chem editing machines were whizzing by them in the water. A wall of water mowed down all of the cages. 
So with no electricity and in the pitch black, all you could see around you were pairs of green eyes from the hundred or so big cats staring at you. (laughs) It took almost two days to catch all the cats that were running loose everywhere. It did take a couple of days to round up all the animals, though that didn't go well either. I mean, it's and then 15 lions and tigers got loose and the sheriff shot three of them, including our star Robbie. And so it was really, really bad. The flood was the one moment where the production almost shut down for good. But by the time the flood happened, as devastating as it was, they were all too invested in Roar to simply shut it down and walk away. So after months of rebuilding, filming resumed. We had so much effort into it that we had put in and so much time. And Dad and Tippy sold everything. We, and all of the kids had a house set aside for them because I made a lot of money as a kid actor and that was going to all of those houses got sold, everything, you know, so everything was tied up in this movie. So even after the flood, we had to finish the thing. After at least five years of pre-production and five years of filming, and with a roughly $17 million price tag, Roar finally premiered in 1981 in Australia. The distribution uh, strategy was wrong in uh, Australia and also in England. And it was partially to do with, and us too, because I think Dad was pitching it as a born free type of movie and a family film because there's a family and there's lions and it's PG. It was too intense for most people. Roar would play in a number of countries, but not the United States. Once during production, Tippy told a reporter that she thought Roar would gross $125 to $150 million. It actually grossed $2 million. And then it just sort of languished. For movie nerds, it was sort of a legend. This crazy production that had 100 lions in it that most of them probably hadn't seen. It wasn't until decades later, after Noel Marshall passed away from cancer in 2010 at the age of 79, that Roar finally got its U.S. distribution in 2015. And that only happened because Tim League of Drafthouse Films, you remember him from the beginning, had finally heard the legend for the first time. I found out about it at Telluride Film Festival in line. So, you know, there's, there's sometimes pretty long lines at Telluride, and I sat down next to this guy, and we started talking. He knew Drafthouse Films, and um, he knew about Miami Connection and The Visitor and a couple of, you know, stranger movies that we put out. And uh, it's, a, it's a director by the name of uh, Greg Marks, um, who I sat down next to, and then he was the one that told me. It's like, hey, have you ever heard of this movie called Roar? And I said, no. Uh, And it's like, all right, well, let me tell you the tale. Keep in mind, people like Tim are mainly at festivals to watch movies that they can potentially acquire for distribution. I think in general, if I'm going to film festivals looking for new movies or if I'm looking at older titles, I'm looking for things that make me say, whoa, like I, you know, this I'm in uncharted territory. I've not seen this before. This is amazing. Uh, This is blowing my mind. But after hearing the story, the one movie he has on his mind is I, I think immediately that night um, went back to my team and there's a bunch of folks on the Alamo team that are heavy duty, you know, you as you might imagine, weird movie collectors. And so I was able to track down a, um, a video copy of it and watched it and it just shattered my brain. <laughs> From there, things moved pretty quickly. 
but Tim still has to jump a hurdle or two to acquire it. I sat down next to Greg at Telluride, watched the movie that night. The next morning, at in the wee hours of the morning, I think I uh, frantically emailed James Shapiro, who at the time was running Draft House Films, and said, "Got a hot one, man. We gotta we gotta figure this out." And so he did. He tracked it down and um, tracked down the rights holder, who was uh, John Marshall, uh, who was in the movie. His his dad, Noel, um, uh, shot the film and was the mastermind behind this crazy beast. Uh, but the problem was is that it had just been sold in a kind of a package deal to Olive Films like the week before. What we had to do at that point was really beg the guys at Olive to uh, let us come on board and you know co-release the film that we would take the the marketing and theatrical push and then they would do the the home video. When it came to marketing Roar, Drafthouse Films did not go the born free route. They went in the exact opposite direction, playing up the very real danger of the movie. The trailer they released says no animals were harmed in the making of this film. 70 cast and crew members were. Tippi Hedren was not happy about this. When Tim League from Alamo Drafthouse took it over five years ago, when he released it in American theaters, he released that's the first time it was in American theaters. He was the one that came up with the saying, no animals were harmed in the making of this film, but 70 cast and crew did. Again, Tippy was so angry about that. So I called Tippy up and I said, Tippy, uh, I'm very sorry if you don't like the marketing. I don't have control over that. But I said, uh, uh, or no, I remember uh, before I called Tippy, I called Tim League up. I had just heard about it. And he came up with this because he called Tippy, he called Melanie, and they wouldn't talk to him. So he just decided to do it on his own. And I said, well, if you'd have gone to the next guy, you know, I'm the spokesperson. And so he flew me down to Austin for four days and I did Q&As and Reddits and all this shit. But I said, Tim, Tippy's so angry about that 70 uh, people getting hurt. And, uh, you know, I think that's why she won't do any promotions. I said, where did you get the number? And he goes, from her book. When I reached out to Tippy, she she got back in touch with me. And, uh, but... Time, enough time had passed that she was really not happy that this movie was seeing the light of day again because she was supportive at the time but over the last 10-15 years she realizes that you know she put her kids in danger and you know it's a, it a weird thing <laughs> Tippi Hedren and Melanie Griffith weren't the only ones who didn't want to talk about Roar in 2015 Jan DeBont who had gone on to great success as a cinematographer and director was also not interested in participating in the promotion of Roar. I, I tried to reach out to everybody who was in the film. Melanie Griffith, Tippi Hedren, uh, Jan DeBont was the cinematographer. And so I, I got in touch with Jan DeBont and he basically said, no, I don't want to be involved. Um, I, you know, I've still, to this day, not been paid a dime for this movie. But Roar did become a modest success for Drafthouse Films in 2015. Internationally, it made some money, but it was... It was extraordinarily expensive to film. Like it's like it was. Uh, so no, in no way, shape, or form was it successful financially. But I mean, it 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 worked for us. Like we made it, it, some money on it, uh, and John, the rights holder, made some money from our release. But if you take the grand scheme of the the money that was spent over the you know next to nearly ten years to to shoot this film and the 
you know, the extravagance of the production, the the animal wrangling, it was a, a monster. So this does beg the question as to why it was never released in the US. Why it never got a US release is that the last round of funding uh, was to be paid back to the investors uh, immediately following the US release. Uh, so, so Noel re- released it basically everywhere except for the US. It ne- we were the US release of the film because he just never wanted to pay that money back. <laughs> what happened was Dad borrowed a lot of money to make this movie. He uh, uh, MGM paid for all the processing and prints on 1.5 million feet of film. And I think it used to be 50 cents. So they put up 750 grand. Panavision gave us anywhere from four to eight cameras for five years. I can only suspect our bill over there would have been about two and a half million. And they both comped it. Uh, but they wanted some, you know, a bit of profit sharing. And then there were other loans and stuff. And, and dad just, uh, he knew that if he released the movie, maybe he'd get 10 million, but he wouldn't make any money and we wouldn't be able to feed the lions. So then everybody went on their way. So the, you know, we all kind of, you know, we get together for holidays, but everybody went off on their careers. Dad released it all over the world, but never in America. Well, what he figured out, I, I believe is that, uh, nobody knew when that there's no way that anybody can touch money coming in from, you know, Korea or somewhere else, you know. But if you released it in America, then it would come out in the trades and they'd had the numbers would be there and the people would be asking for the money and dad wouldn't make any money. So he wanted to wait until all the liens fell off nope. and then he'd release the movie. <laughs> in 1982, one year after the initial release of Roar, Tippy and Noel would divorce. Tippi Hendren's initial belief that big cats and humans could coexist had completely changed. By 1983, the Roar set wound up becoming a preserve for abandoned big cats that Tippi would run. She also helped get a bill passed through Congress. It's called the Big Cats in Public Safety Protection Act. The bill prohibits the owning of big cats as pets or for use at roadside attractions. Tippi Hendren and Noel Marshall um, were directionally correct, right? I mean, they set up a foundation that still exists today. If you if you Google the Roar Foundation, Tibi Hedren still oversees the Shambhala, which is where this movie was filmed in the grapevine north of LA. Uh, and and the Roar Foundation is for um, uh, providing a preserve and a reserve for um, lions and big cats in, in a in a proper way, in a nonprofit way, not like a Tiger King sort of style, right? It, it's a it's a really solid nonprofit and their hearts are in the right Direction. John Marshall seemingly worked on every aspect of Roar, in front of the camera and behind the camera. And years later, what stayed with him is a need for danger. It took me about, oh, probably 10 years to figure out. But what I missed was I, I, I thrived on the danger. I missed that adrenaline rush from the danger. So what I would do, production's perfect because there's always so many dangerous things in production. And I was always the one that would do the most dangerous thing, even though I was the producer or the AD or, you know, I was always the most qualified and I'd never ask anybody to do anything that, you know, is so dangerous that, you know, I wouldn't do it unless, you know, it's like, uh, you know, flying a jet. I don't know how to do that. I mean, I'm not licensed, so they'd have to do that. But, you know, anything else. So So this was sort of... anyway. A lingering after effect of the experience. Yeah, and I still am, I find things, I need things to replace the danger. 
my girlfriend thinks, you know, she's like, she, she knows that even though I'm 66 and I got gray hair, I mean, I'm, I, I look fit and I'm really fast on my feet. And my reflexes are fast. But what people don't realize is that when your life is in danger and you have to beat up three or four lions to get out of there, I don't think anything of a couple or five guys coming at me at one time. <laughs> Roar did give a number of people their first or just about first job in the industry. Marco Lano, for example, was a boom operator who went on to win an Oscar for Best Sound for the movie Titanic and has been nominated three other times. Watching the movie Roar is a strange experience. There's barely a plot other than people getting attacked by lions. It seems more like a home movie at times. And even though you know you're watching a movie, you can very easily tell these people are really struggling with these big cats. It's definitely not for everyone. But if you do see it, you won't forget it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for more great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. If you love movies, or you're a movie maker yourself, there's something for you at moviemaker.com. There's also a great newsletter you can sign up for. I know, you have a lot of newsletters, but really, this one's worth it. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my guests this week, John Marshall, Robert Primes, and Tim League. The excerpts from Tim Cooney's article were read by Patrick Oliver-Jones. Patrick is the host of a great podcast that you should check out called Why I'll Never Make It. It's an interview show where he speaks with actors and other artists about their struggles to make it in the industry. It's great stuff. You can find it wherever you got this podcast from or at whyillnevermakeit.com. Links to all sources used for this episode, to Patrick's podcast, and anything else I can think of as relevant can be found at my website, theindustrypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever else you can leave a review. If you'd like to contact me, you can. You can email me. It's dan at moviemaker.com. I'm also on Twitter at theindustry13. Instagram at industry underscore podcast and Facebook at the industry pod. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back again soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry. Be good, everyone. <laughs>